Oh my goodness, I haven't even started yet. I like it. It's not for, the pastor has humbled me. It's not for you. It they were wooing for Jesus. <laughs> okay, a couple things. Number one, <clears throat> my I want to sincerely apologize. I think I'm on the very tail end of whatever this chest cold thing is. So you've tested if it's fine. I the pastor would like for me to share with you that I have <laughs> I have tested negative for COVID, so you don't have to. <clears throat> so I don't. Th- if I was contagious, I wouldn't be here. Or if I thought that I was contagious, or if I thought, if I, never mind. I'm making this far too big of a deal. I'm just. <clears throat> I'm just. I'm bringing it up because because. It may happen where I, I just cough and I, apologize. I just want to apologize up front and just get that out of the way. So we, we had remote gate, we have microphone gate, and now we have health gate, apparently. So cough gate, so we have all those problems. Uh, second, can I just tell you that we were singing Te Amo, I Love You With All My Heart, and all I could see was Savannah wearing pizza my heart the entire time. So thank you, Savannah. Well, well done. We're in the middle of an M25 series, which is Matthew chapter 25. And like I normally do, I have a caveat to share with you. I have what I think, for for me, a pretty insightful thing that Jesus is doing in this passage, that he only takes three words to share. Um, And so I'm gonna make a fair amount out of these three words, because they are there, um, and kind of like if you've been with Spark for any period of time, you know that the biblical writers did not waste real estate. It's not as if they wanted to expand their writing because they had a contract for a certain number of pages that they needed to fill or a certain number of words. What I'm gonna share with you, of course, though, has significant implications. So what I'd like to share with you is the idea, the central concept, the thing that I think Jesus is doing here, and questions are gonna come up for you. It's like, but wait a second, does that mean this? And I'm going to say to you, that is a fantastic question. That is the question that emerges out of solid study and deep thinking about these particular passages. So if I'm getting through the talk and you're like, but wait a second, there are some implications for this for how you behave, for how you serve, for how you do philanthropy, for how you do relationships. The answer is yes, of course there are. What I'd like for you to be captivated by with me it's just this fundamental ground concept that I think Jesus is doing. That I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's connected to a host of really intriguing and honestly life-changing kinds of perspectives. And then we get to, together as a, as a community, decide how does that actually work. As we've done before, we are in one passage. And so we're going to read that passage again. And if you have been paying attention, I've highlighted different words this time. So again, as we mentioned before, same passage, but there's always these things, like, was that there before? Yeah, it was, we're just now paying attention to it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or, gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king, which was my message two weeks ago, will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. The least of these, brothers and sisters of mine. These are the three Greek words. He says, the brothers of mine in Greek. So the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition 2023 has rendered this brothers and sisters. And what I would like to suggest is that is a idiom to say my family. The least of these who are my family. Now, many of you will not be surprised, because we've talked about this many times, that the word behind brothers and sisters there is the word adelphoi. Now, we've also talked about that when you put it together with another Greek word, philos, it comes up with cities such as the name Philadelphia, which means the? Now, while that is the etymology of this particular term, the history behind it is actually far more pernicious and far more disturbing, which might make you wonder whether or not you should ever visit Philadelphia again. Because back in the ancient world, this term actually arose in Greek civic and political and cultural life because ancient emperors and kings and people who were in charge wanted to maintain and establish a boundary around their rule and their authority, which means that I want to make sure that I and my family get to maintain this kind of power. And so many of you know about nepotism. This is what nepotism is, and it comes from a word that means nephew. I'm going to take my brother or my sister's son and install him, so we're going to keep it all in the family. But the ancient Greeks, starting around the second century BC with a guy by the name of Ptolemy, decided to take it one step further. And as far as I think I understand, somebody can fact check me on this, the Uh, the Ptolemies seem to have been the first to really make this practice stick. And that was the practice, not of nephews or not of cousins, but of literal brothers and sisters. So they would create a kind of what is known as endogamous marriage, whereby I, as the king, have a son and I have a daughter, and to ensure that the power maintains within my family line and that it cannot be threatened by foreign powers or any other particular threats, those two people will actually be married. And the Greeks therefore started to name ancient cities Philadelphia, quite literally the love of my brother. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. If you've done any history, if you've done any thinking about power, politics, social hierarchies, you know that people who are in power have a tendency to maintain that power. 
And the goal of these kinds of manipulations of social and civic systems, the goal is the consolidation of power. And by the way, do people still do this today? Yes. Now, maybe not necessarily brother and sister kind of marriage thing that we think of, but the idea of leveraging family for power is something that was very much popularized, very much uh, well-known in, in Jesus' day, and something that people still do to this particular day. This is honestly why I find these three words that Jesus kind of sneaks into this huge passage about feeding the poor, clothing the naked, uh, giving thir- a drink to the thirsty, visiting those who are sick <laughs> and in prison. <laughs> That was not in the script. That was free. In the midst of that commission, he, there's like this comma. Who are my brothers and sisters, my family? This is a completely different categorical shift for, the, for him, for the culture, and for the people to whom he was talking to. Those people out there who are disenfranchised are the poor, the marginalized, the sick, the imprisoned. But the reality, so says Jesus, that's not who they are. That might be their condition, but that's not who they are. Who they are, those are my family members. And this, I think, is one of the things that makes Jesus so brilliant and revolutionary and so gosh darn hard to follow. Because what he's asking of his followers is to consider the poor and the sick and the infirmed and the imprisoned not as a category of society, but as members of God's family. So the idea of leveraging family for the sake of power, very well understood. Everybody does that, did that, still does it to this particular day. But the idea of calling less powerful people in society family. Now, that is nonsense. It's scandalous, and it's actually a threat to centralized power. Because if they're family, then guess who gets to inherit all the riches and the goodness and the power of the king? So this is what's going on in, this, in these three little words. And like I said, this is going to have huge implications, and I hope that I do justice to what I think is going on here. Fundamentally, what Jesus is doing is a really important philosophical shift in worldview and how we think and how we understand because there is a world of difference between one's condition and one's identity. And so often in our culture, not in, so often in our culture, this is just what we do. We categorize people according to their condition. We classify people according to how much they make. We put them in particular social structures depending upon how much money they have or what kind of disease they have or what kind of mental status they have. So this is what we do. But somebody's condition is not their identity. And especially if you're going to talk about a God who has created every single human on the face of the planet in God's image and God's likeness, then what Jesus is doing here in these three little words is reminding us of a more core fundamental truth about who people are. And who people are is not 
the condition that they are in. Are you with me? So in Jesus' vision, you don't consolidate power, you dismantle it by elevating the equal worth and value of everybody. If that person is a brother and sister, if that person is a family member, in fact, if they all are, then we divide the inheritance equally among them. Where the Ptolemies and other powerful people are going to suggest, I'm going to marry to ensure nobody gets access to this wealth, what Jesus does is says, everybody gets access to this wealth because they are my family. If you see them as poor people, if you see them as sick people, if you see them as criminals, you are missing, and in fact, maybe even abusing the very fundamental truth that this faith is teaching us about who people truly are. So that's, that's it. That's what I think Jesus is doing here. And I would like for us to consider that what Jesus is doing is profoundly important and life-transforming if we could grasp hold of this principle and spread it to virtually everything that we do. Because there's a couple things going on. Number one, he's making a claim about who those people are. Two, he's asking all of us to shift our thinking and our beliefs, our presuppositions, our biases, our veils that we put upon, the categories that we live by. He's asking us to get rid of that, to see everything in a completely different light. And if we were to do that, then maybe how we behave towards one another would then follow. And our behavior towards other people is really poor, really bad, because we first have a very false and inappropriate and distorted view and philosophical perception of who the people actually are. So what Jesus is doing, two things. He's making a declaration about who the poor, the sick, the naked, the hungry, and the thirsty are. Number two, he's asking us, shift the way you think. Don't call them that. They are my brothers, my sisters, my family. Now, <clears throat> this is the idea. In social psychology, psychology, behavioral science, and all of that stuff, there's always this wonderful tension and debate. What causes the other? Do beliefs cause behaviors, or do behaviors cause belief? And the answer is... Yes. And if you just do any of the research uh, on most of this literature, you will recognize that there are moments when you need to act. And by acting, you take on the philosophy, the worldview, the beliefs. But then there are moments, truly sincere moments, where you have to stop and think. You have to have something just kind of bulldoze you over and go, I've been thinking about this completely wrong. And so now I need to behave differently in accordance to that different kind of thinking. In sociology, this is a word called praxis. It's a way to describe this dynamic interplay, this tension, this paradox, this both and of beliefs and behaviors. And what I'm suggesting in this particular passage is that Jesus is doing both. First, go and feed them. Go and give them drink. Go and visit them. I mean, behave in this particular way that is loving. But by throwing in this phrase of... My family, 
my brothers and sisters. He's also, also asking you to change what you actually believe. Now, this is not a new concept. Uh, back in, in the 1920s, uh, this gentleman by the name of Hermann uh, was a was an amateur artist and an up-and-coming psychiatrist and psychologist, and he realized that these two things actually interplay to one another, and that you can start to get into the way in which people think and the way in which people perceive the world through the art that they look at. And so he devised a particular kind of test that is still popular to this day, where people would look at a particular kind of art, and then the psychologist or psychiatrist would read and study how did they react, what did they see. And it's fascinating because the exact same piece of art would yield wildly different perspectives. Does anybody know this guy's last name? Rosha, yeah, you guys know. And a famous uh, New York Times uh, best-selling book, Duck Rabbit, is essentially a modern Rorschach test. A Rorschach test is what do you see there? Do you see a rabbit or do you see a duck or do you see both? So let's take a look. These are some of the original images of Hermann Rorschach. What do you see? And uh, go ahead, participate. You don't have to say it out loud if you want, but you can. What do you, what do you see? Butterfly. Butterfly. A, a statue. Gargoyles. Gargoyles. I see, I see a deeply traumatized parent who just wouldn't give me my second hamburger. That's what I see. Uh, yeah, so here's another one. He started to add different colors. Yeah, here's another one. Now, the idea here is that you're supposed to reflect upon what, what is it that is evoked within you. And the psychologist, a really good one, pays close attention to what emerges. Because the reality is the painting doesn't change, but what you see does, depending upon who you are, the state that you're in, etc. Maybe you can't see anything because you're too busy saying, hey, is that Brad Pitt? I don't know. <laughs> so, maybe, <laughs> which, is, I, which is honestly everything that I could see when I was putting these slides together. So, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's, yeah? yeah? That's pretty, I mean... 1920s doppelganger, Brad. Okay, there you go. Now, the key principle of the Rorschach test. Now, let me just say, for those of you, because I know there are really intelligent, smart, studied people in this room who are going to fact check me on this. The Rorschach test is incredibly controversial, depending upon how it's used. The way in which it has progressed over the last century has, has been complicated. So I recognize that. When I read the original kind of literature, though, the, the original idea there's something that he was on, which is one of the reasons why we still use this test to this day, and we still have it in our vernacular. Here's the key idea. Projective psychological test in which subjects' perceptions and ink blots are recorded and then analyzed. It's the projection piece. It's, that, it, it's not about the ink blot. It's about what is inside of me that's drawing out a particular perception of that, of that thing. And that's what is interesting. That's what we want to know. Because the thing that's actually in us is often blind to us. We don't know it. We don't understand it. So we use psychiatry and psychology to get around that, to get out of us what is really going on. A TED-animated uh, video described the Rorschach test and a little bit of its history. And at the very end, uh, this video said this. Visual perception varies from person to person. And this, listen to this quote. This is so huge. All our senses are deeply connected, 
Our process of perception doesn't just register sensory inputs, but transforms them. Now, here's what they're saying here. When you observe something and make some sort of observation, an analysis, and perceive something, there's clearly data that's coming towards you. You know, the description of the person. Let, let's just use a person. The person, what they're wearing, their height, their race, uh, the, the position that they're in, etc. And you are making particular judgments. But what seems to be the case is that as you perceive something and start to make those observations, you are actually transforming at the same time the thing that you are seeing. Because you are starting to say things like, that's a poor person. That is a rich person. Right, right? You have no clue that you're doing this. It's something that happens automatically. So your perceptions are not just accepting this input. It's changing it. In other words, what you believe, your, the preconditions of your mind, where you grew up, your social identity, all of these things are affecting what it is that you actually see. That phrase, our process of perception doesn't just register sensory inputs, but transforms them. That is a mind-blowing kind of idea. We are making significant judgments about the things and the people and the relationships and the societies around us on a regular basis. And by making those judgments, we are actually saying something about them. It is radically transformative of how this world gets shaped. We don't just see, we perceive. And by perceiving, we are transforming everything around us. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. And for those of us who have been in ministry for decades, we know that there's this very famous line in marriage counseling that you do. Let's just start at the basics. My spouse is not my enemy. Now, you laugh about that, right? Because here's the reality for anybody who has been married for a minute or in a close relationship. This doesn't just deal with marriage. It's with any interpersonal relationships. Miscommunication happens. A, a mistake happens. Some sort of accident happens. And then all of a sudden, we see that event or that thing through our lens, and because of categories within us, because of the way in which we frame things, we would say something, something like, a smart person would never do that. A good person would never do that. What you're saying isn't true. It's your perception. But as you say that, what does this person that you're in relationship instantly become? The enemy, the bad person, the one who's at fault. Your perceptions transform the actual kind of relationship that you have. And so, sometimes, good psychologists and counselors will say, let's just start at the very basic. Your spouse is not your enemy. But the reason why we got there in the first place is because our perceptions are actually changing the kind of relationship that we have. This is what we're talking about. 
This happens in politics. In fact, politicians are very good at using these kinds of perceptions for their own good. Everybody, let's wake up and pay attention. Let's not be manipulated anymore. One of the most famous examples of this by Frank Luntz, who was a Republican uh, strategist and consultant, changed the name uh, from estate tax to death tax. Because the, the whole point was, when you change the meaning of that particular term, it changes what people think about it and changes the reality of its implication in our civic society. 68% of Americans oppose the estate tax. 78% of Americans oppose the death tax. It's the exact same tax. Of course, this happens when, and this makes very good late-night television, of course, one-third don't know that Obamacare and, Afford and the Affordable Care Act are the same. This was very famous. Jimmy Kimmel did a whole bunch of videos about this, and of course, they're funny. Now, what I need to say is for those of us who kind of understand this, we, we're, we're involved kind of thing, this is not a moment where we laugh at those people for being dumb, uninformed, unintelligent, because what are we doing if we do that? We're doing the very thing that these kind of satirical things are trying to expose. We are falling into the exact same category. This can happen because this is part of what we all do. We see something, we perceive it, and we transform it through our perceptions. Perhaps the most brilliant example of this is Fritzi Horseman and her work in the Compassion Prison Project. If you haven't had a chance to see my interview with her, I would highly recommend it. She used trauma and compassionate care in the prison systems. Last time I chatted with her, she said that she's having some meetings with California State to transform the way the prison system works. And this is uh, personal to me because I, I know, uh, I have a friend who's in the prison system. And so thinking about trauma-informed and compassionate justice changes everything. What you think, what you believe, what you perceive transforms Reality. Here's an example. So what she does is she goes into these prison systems and she talks about adverse childhood experiences and trauma and, and if you've ever had these experiences in your life and, and tries to create compassionate care, not only for those who are incarcerated, the inmates, but also for the guards. It's incredible, incredible work. Because in our popular rhetoric, it's... Um, what do I want to say? It's disturbing... It's so disheartening, it's, it's, it's maddening and angering to me that we use words like criminals and murderers and thugs. Let's just be honest. Somebody broke the law, there's laws that we have in place and legislation, and there's a civic system that we need to adhere to, right? And you'll, if you listen to Fritzi, she's like, listen, that's all part of the system. But what she's doing is that these are not criminals. If you say these are criminals, if you say they are murderers, and that is how you perceive them, then your perceptions change your behavior and your attitude, your approach, changes your worldview, changes everything, and guess what? You create, in addition, of the kind of prison system that exacerbates the very nature of criminals and murderers and thugs. And so what she does is she changes, no, these are, that is not who you are. 
Your condition is not your identity. And when she does this work and talks about them being traumatized and abused, and you hear these stories, and they're heartbreaking. And then she calls them, you are my friend. Changes everything. And it changes what kind of prison it is, what kind of culture, and then what kind of life people have who are incarcerated. And this is one of the quotes that she has in, in her work. Your true spirits are not violent. Your true spirits are magnificent. A transformation of your perception actually changes the world. It changes how you behave. It changes the world around you. It changes everything. One of my favorite examples is called the fundamental attribution error. It's also called correspondence bias. It is like you see a parent with an unruly child, and you're like, what a horrible parent that is. Then your child acts up like, what a horrible kid I have. (laughs) It is to attribute external factors to your difficult situations and attribute internal factors to other people's dysfunctions. You're dysfunctional because you're not good. You're pretty bad. You're clearly ignorant. Well, the reason why I'm in this situation is because so-and-so, and and you should have seen the traffic, and you know, well, it, fundamental attribution error. And what's fascinating about this is if you perceive that all of your issues are external to you, guess what? You can't change. If you started to shift the perception, say, wait, wait, wait. I do have agency, I do have autonomy, I do have control, then you actually change your situation. Perceptions are not just a receiving of data, it's a transformation of it. Last one. I will confess, this is the worst one for me. I have days where my eco-anxiety is pretty high when I think I'm not quite sure if my daughter's gonna make it out of this mess well. But I will, t- I will say something uh, to myself. If that's what I believe, that's how I'll behave. And if that's what I believe and that's how I behave, guess what kind of world I create? And so people who are in this space about our ecological challenges recognize that, listen, we may have full emotional justification to say, we're screwed. But if that's how we perceive the world, then we're screwed. One of our heroes around Spark is Catherine Hayhoe. I wish she would come, but she's so busy. Just go look up every single video that she's ever made. She talks about this extensively to say, These are things that are bad, but here's why hanging on to hope is so critical, because hope transforms how you see, transforms how you perceive, transforms what you believe, and therefore transforms how you behave. And if all of us can hold on to hope and say, no, there's the way out. This is how we can do it. This is what we know to be true. Then guess what? That belief actually transforms behavior, and the world will follow. My friends, what I'm suggesting is that there's a whole host of studies and understandings about human nature that would suggest that your beliefs about the world matter deeply 
because they actually shape the world. That's how critical this is. And so, again, when Jesus talks about them being brothers and sisters, that is a paradigm shift of belief that could radically change everything. For many, many years, I've been saying the phrase, that which you give attention, you give power. So if you give horrible things, doomism, depression, so much attention, well, this is all the things that are bad, these are all the things that are horrible, guess what? Those are the things you give power. Uh, the idea is to give attention, well, Philippians chapter 4, give attention to things that are lovely and true and beautiful and joyful, and then you'll give those things power in your life. And it's amazing. You just change your attention. Change your attention, and you change your life. It's, it's incredible that it's written there. Because we're talking about philanthropy, doing good in the world, good works, rescue works, we need to add some additional pieces to not just that which you give attention, you give power, but you need to recognize that the attention that you give is actually a moral act. If you give attention to things that are despairing, you are making a moral choice about what can be good in this world. This phrase comes from the work of Ian McGilchrist, who's written brilliantly on our neuropsychology and the making of our culture. It's incredibly brilliant. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing, not only just in this passage, throughout the entirety of his work. What you give attention to is a critical piece of how you act morally in this world. In his book, The Crack in the Cosmic Age, Egg, New Constructs of Mind and Reality, Joseph Chilton Pierce says it this way, which I love. A change of worldview can change the world viewed. A change of worldview can change the world viewed. So, my friends, this has incredible implications. <clears throat> and I would encourage you to to really, really, really consider this for your relationships, for your mental health, for your everyday schedule, for your work in this world, for your job, for everything. What you give attention, you give power. And the attention that you give is an establishment of how you live morally in this world. And it's a creation of what kind of world you live in and your family and your friends live in. Applied to this Matthew 25 passage, what if instead of seeing the poor, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, we saw God's family suffering. What if that is the thing that we saw? What if we perceived differently? Because, as we know, there is a radical difference between what we have done and who we are. And if we continue to see the benefactors of our service, those who receive our food or clothing, through the lens of their condition, if we continue to see them as that, as if it were their actual identity, we actually run the risk of perpetuating the very problem Jesus is calling us to redeem. We end up keeping people in poverty. We end up keeping people sick. We end up making things worse for those who are in prison. And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. 
These are my family members. They're not the poor. They're not the sick. That person is not the enemy. They are my brothers and sisters. Rich Stearns, in his, gospel, in his book, uh, The Hole in Our Gospel, has this really wonderful translation of Matthew 25 that I think we should consider. Listen carefully, because I think what he's done here illuminates kind of how we see it sometimes and why the Jesus way is so radical and transformative. For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. I think he's spot on. For many of us in our culture, in our day, and the reason why he's spot on is because that is kind of how we see things. And we do benevolence and kindness because, well, it's a good thing to do and we don't want people to suffer too bad. They have enough. That's sustainable if they are the poor, the sick, and the infirmed, and the incarcerated. If they're the criminal and the thug. If they're the enemy and they're the ones who are their own, they are their own worst enemy. But that is an abomination if they are your brothers and sisters, if they are your family, if they belong to you, if they are made in the image and likeness of God. This is unacceptable if that's who they are. And what I'm suggesting, my friends, is that Jesus is encouraging us and challenging us to have a complete radical change of our worldview. And if we can change our worldview, we can change the world viewed. So what do you see? What do you see? Do you see the depressed? Do you see the criminal? Do you see the poor? Do you see the beggar? Do you see the one who is their own worst enemy? The one who gets what they deserve? What do you see? What do you see? This is the question. What do you see? And the challenge for all of us is that we begin to see every single one of us and them as these brothers and sisters of God the king who deserve the full rights and privileges of that inheritance. And if we could change that perception, man, how would that change everything in our world? The person with whom you need reconciliation, the child who you've lost touch with, work, church, friends, everything. Change what you believe. And you'll change how everybody behaves. 
we're going to come to a time of communion. And it is my hope that you will also now change how you see what we do here. This is not just a ritual. It's a profoundly deep spiritual act of connecting and communing with the one who has created you. And every time you take the elements, you are again, once again, transformed. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, every single one of you, every single one, is welcome to participate at this table. And as you do, be transformed once again. Please come as we sing.